0: And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to be considering Acts chapter 17 today and about these uh, philosophers in Athens. The Athenians are those people that we read about earlier who were without hope and without God in the world. They were very religious, we read, very religious, but the... Judgment of God is no hope without God. If you're visiting with us, by the way, we're doing a uh, a rare uh, topical series, not just based on my own ideas, but on a book I'll be uh, explaining again briefly to you today, one that uh, goes through to compare the biblical teaching on a variety of subjects and what is currently the dominant religion of the professing church of Jesus. Christianity versus liberalism. Uh, Let me read to you, beginning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He saw that the city was given over to idols, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily, with those who happened to be there. Then a certain Epicurean and Stoic excuse me, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, Does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and Find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by man's art and devising. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands All men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have inspired this word by your spirit that we might be built up as it's written in doctrine, in reproof, in correction, and in instruction and in righteousness that we might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So it is now. We turn and pray that we would have a deeper understanding of the truth of God as it is given and the generation of our day, which needs to know it. We pray that you would help us to be good ambassadors of Christ Jesus, even as the apostle reasoned daily in the marketplace, teaching Jesus and the resurrection. So we wish the word of God to again go forth with power and with wisdom as you gave your servant of old an understanding into the times in which he lived and the lies that were being told about God in his day. So we long to understand those same lies and to be able to proclaim the truth as it is in Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. When Paul entered the city of Athens, we read he saw an astonishing sight. He entered the intellectual capital of the world of that day only to find more idols than he had ever seen in his life, thousands upon thousands of them. In fact, one of the writers of that time says that in Athens in those days, it was easier to find a god than a man. Well, Paul's spirit, we read, was deeply moved, or actually provoked within him, made his heart burn. He was a missionary. And since his sudden and dramatic and utterly unexpected transformation from being the chief enemy of Christianity to its champion among the nations, Paul had been traveling all over the Greco-Roman world of that day, telling people about Jesus Christ and how they might find joyful salvation in him. Everywhere he went, people believed, churches were formed, And now he'd arrived in Athens, the capital city of Greece, now, of course, under the dominion of Rome, yet it still enjoyed the reputation for being the center of the world for learning and culture. It had been the home of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and even Aristotle's most famous student had studied there anyone? Alexander the Great. Like many centers of learning in that day, there was sophisticated philosophy mixed with pagan superstition. Paul entered this crazy city. He had come so far from Jerusalem, not just geographically, but in every way. This this place was so far from understanding who God was in, in ignorance of the scriptures, with its countless idols, Paul could have looked at his little dog and said, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? And in our own culture, we, we do have some of the same feeling, don't we? You understand something of the provocation of spirit that Paul felt, because we are also, have come a long way, baby. We, we are not in Kansas anymore. We're a long way from Jerusalem. We're a long way from the knowledge of God and his word, and in a land of Countless idols, it seems, recently, even on uh, that game show, Jeopardy, they they asked the contestants, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, it says, Our Father, which art in heaven, blank, be thy name. <laughs> right? Three of the most educated people in our country drew a total blank. Uh, we've come a long way, baby. In the last generation, especially, we've seen tremendous changes. There's the obvious ones, the ones that we might... Uh, see or experience daily if we took a time machine back right sixty years ago. I mean the Bible is no longer read in schools, prayer is no longer offered there. Uh, hard to think that it was so different just a generation ago, as some of you will know. But but my point to you in this series is that there have been very deep changes as well that have caused all these other changes. For the professing church in the main has embraced something called, by its friends as well as its enemies, liberalism, uh, which still uses Christian words, but changes the meaning of those words to produce nothing less than a new religion, one that is natural rather than supernatural. This was very hard to understand when it first came into the church from Germany. And the church needed someone on the inside who could explain it to them. A man named Gresson Machen had studied liberalism in Germany from some of its most eminent teachers. In fact, for a time, he was taken in by it. He was persuaded, captivated. His professor, Hermann, Wilhelm Hermann, was so devout, so alive. But Machen came to understand that This man was, in fact, passionate about another God altogether, and the true God was unknown to him. And then he realized also, as soon as you lose the truth of God, you start to lose everything else. You certainly lose the truth about man with it. And Machen, then having come back to America and joined the faculty at Princeton Seminary, wrote a book 100 years ago this year called Christianity and liberalism, to explain the difference, and to warn the churches in America, which were already in confusion and convulsing, and soon to divide over this very issue. Today we're gonna be hearing some of the ideas from his third chapter called God and Man, and learn the truth about these things from God's word. But by way of brief review, of what we've learned the last two weeks and what we're going to be seeing today, I asked the artificial intelligence engine, ChatGPT if it could explain the difference to me between Christianity and liberalism's view of God and man. I was astonished at how good the answer was, for the AI replied, Christianity and liberalism have different views on the nature and destiny of God and man. Christianity affirms that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that man is created in his image and likeness, but fallen into sin and in need of redemption. Liberalism denies the existence of a personal and transcendent God and regards man as a product of natural evolution and social conditioning, capable of self-improvement and progress. Christianity teaches that God has revealed himself in history through his word and his son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for the salvation of sinners. Liberalism rejects the authority and sufficiency of the Bible and considers Jesus a moral teacher and a human example, but not as the divine Savior and Lord. Christianity proclaims that God is sovereign over all aspects of life and that man is accountable to him for his thoughts, words, and deeds. Liberalism asserts that man is autonomous, that is, governing himself, and free to determine his own values and goals, and that no one has the right to impose his beliefs or morals on others. Christianity calls man to repent of his sins and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and eternal life and to follow him in obedience and love. Liberalism encourages man to pursue his own happiness and fulfillment and to respect the diversity and pluralism of other views and lifestyles. This thing's going to put me out of business, man. I'm going to start preaching ChatGPT GPT to you. That's better than what I would say, Right. That, that was not taken from some website that somewhere. That was the synthesis of an, uh, of an artificial intelligence. And I wonder how long it will take for the thought police to tell ChatGPT that it can't say those things and to stop telling the truth like that, right? That's astonishing. Well, I do think it's an excellent summary of the differences, and I thought it might be fun just to give you what a, what a computer said for a change, right? You listen to me long enough. Well... We're not going to listen to a computer. We're not going to even listen to Machen. We're going to come to a passage. A passage today that says, you know, all this is nothing new. Machen himself pointed out that the, the, this is simply, liberalism is simply a modern variation of ancient paganism. The word that he used. And as we look at the passage before us, I would like to highlight three things. I'm afraid I I can't uh, work through this passage in the depth and length that I would like, but I would like to highlight three things from it. God, unknown, man, under judgment, and Christ, our only hope. God, unknown, man, under judgment, and Christ, our only hope. First, God unknown. God unknown. These Athenians clearly had a sense that it was was very important to be right with the gods. They were, in all things, very religious, he says. And their many idols were a testimony to a, a certain spiritual uncertainty, particularly because they had the one idol there, an altar to an unknown god. Many in that day did seem to be searching for God in a certain way. Perhaps groping is the word that Paul uses, maybe maybe better, though he's not far from each one of us. Some of the people at least had some idea of the divine greatness and the dependence of the world upon God. But God still remained to them unknown, unpredictable, unnamed, shrouded in mystery. They were, as the Apostle said, without God and without hope in the world. Perhaps there are some here today that are in the same situation. That is to say, to to you, you have some sense of the divine, but God is distant, unknown. And as a result, you live an uncertain life. Maybe you don't know what can be known about God. And you have these questions, therefore, that must be unanswered. Why am I here? What, what is good and right? What am I doing? Where am I going? What is life about? Is there life after death? And if so, how might I enjoy it? You spend a little time thinking about the most important questions, and you'll realize it's hard to live without answers to them. It's so hard that people come up with their own answers that might suit them. In some parts of the world, as in Greece, people would take a block of stone or wood and shape a god into the image that pleased them most. It was hard just to have nothing to answer such questions. In some parts of the world, they made an idol, cutting away everything they didn't want. And then when they were done, as Isaiah puts it, they bow down and says, Save me, you're my god. It was a very foolish way to solve the problem, but that was the way that our Western world was until the entrance of Christianity. Uh, Eastern world also, I suppose, but the point is that was where we started. People today look down on that as superstitious, primitive behavior, but you know it's possible to do the very same thing today, to fashion a God as you want Him to be, to worship a God of your understanding that's disconnected from the God that is. A 2009 poll by George Barna reported that most Americans hold, quote, an unpredictable and contradictory body of beliefs. And 71% of Christians say they're more likely to develop their own set of religious beliefs than to get them from a church or something. That's, That's modern idolatry. And I want you to face it. I want you to be rather provoked in your spirit, that we have more idolatry today than they had in Athens. People do it today without the use of precious metals, but they do it nonetheless. Now, the educated folk in Athens tended to follow one of two different schools of thought, both represented here. Stoicism, stressed reason, and self-sufficiency. And it held what's called a pantheistic view of God, that God was everywhere and in everything, at least everything good. And it taught that people should accept the unchangeable things of life without passion, similar to some forms of Buddhism. That's Stoicism. Epicureanism, the other thing mentioned here in the passage, taught that pleasure or happiness was the chief end of life. It's about how we feel. And the Epicureans attacked superstitions and irrational religious faith. They did not like idolatry, as a matter of fact. The Epicureans were generally materialists or naturalists. They believed that this world is all that there really is. The gods, well, if they ever existed, which they doubted, were at least very far removed from the life of mankind. They had nothing to do with the world today. So Paul here sides with both of them to a point and shows them that they haven't gone nearly far enough with the truth and that they are, in fact, living inconsistent with what they already do know. I'll get back to that in just a moment. But you think, okay, Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, I mean, that's all very well. But what does that have to do with with the modern world? What does it have to do with the religion that's captured the church in modern America? Well, the point is, much in every way. Uh, Machen's beloved professor, Hermann, Wilhelm Hermann, the professor that taught him liberalism, who persuaded him for a time. He taught that God was not personal, but rather, uh, not a person, but rather in his own words, quote, the personal vitality and power of goodness or more more, uh, up-to-date here in America, in one of the most famous liberal sermons ever delivered in America, delivered the year before Machen wrote his book, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the popularizer of liberalism, preached, quote, divinity, the God, the divine, is not something supernatural that ever and again invades the natural order in a crashing miracle. (laughs) Divinity is not in some remote heaven seated on a throne. Wherever goodness, beauty, truth, and love are, there is the divine. See, that sounds really pretty, but... That's pretty different, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Machen says, when the liberal preacher uses the word God, he means something entirely different from what the Christian means by the same word. God, at least according to the logical trend of modern liberalism, is not a person separate from the world, but merely the unity that pervades the world, at least the good stuff. To say, therefore, that Jesus is God, writes Machen, is merely to say that the life of God, which appears in all men, Appears to us with special clearness or richness in Jesus. End quote. This is kind of heady stuff, but you see, Christianity, Machen says, has a lot more in common with Unitarianism than liberalism, because Unitarians, at least professedly, believe prof- professedly believe in a personal God, but that is not the case with liberalism, which still uses the same terms, but invests them with a completely different meaning. Though Mation cautions, some liberals, though perhaps a decreasing number, are true believers in a personal God. Okay. So, we need to distinguish, he says. Here's the the pure source of truth from its leaders that I'm telling you about where God is not personal. And then there's the reality, the, the mixture that we see in the church in America. Some liberals do seem to believe in a personal God. True believers, he says, actually, in a pure personal God. We say, this is really confusing. Some believe this. Some believe that. In fact, how can that even all be called liberalism? That's a good question. Because, as we saw last time, liberalism allows people to have any belief about God they like. You pick. What's important is not what we think about God, but what we feel about God. Not the head knowledge, if you like, but the heart knowledge. That's where the true knowledge of divinity comes. The knowledge of God, says Mason, Oh, sorry, Mason's quoting the liberal teacher here. The knowledge of God is the death of religion. We should not seek to know God, but should merely feel His presence. Does this turn on any light bulbs for you? Is this helpful? Let me explain it to you this way. Three days after 9-11, after the terrorist attacks, It dawned on me that this had become the new national religion as we had a multi-faith service in our National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., led by clerics of different religions and attended by President Bush and many other national and international leaders. The, The service began with the Dean of the National Cathedral addressing a prayer, quote, to the God of Abraham, Muhammad, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know what he's doing. He's trying just to to, to set the keynote that Muslims and Christians are worshipers of the same God, and we're united in that. And that may sound like a very nice prayer. But in fact, that prayer excludes both Muslims and Christians. For example, no, no Muslim can pray to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not allowed, because no real Muslim, believes that God is the father of Jesus. I don't want to add fuel to the flames of hatred, of course. Don't get me wrong. But in Islam, that is damnable doctrine. That is literally damnable doctrine. Shirk, as it's called. But doctrine is the very thing that liberalism rejects. We, don't, we can hold whatever view we like. We can think whatever we like. Mason says, the knowledge of God is according to them the death of religion but we should seek to know god merely to we shouldn't seek to know god merely to feel his presence and the world that holds contradictory ideas can share good feelings if it is satisfied to remain in ignorance this is our national religion that is to say, held now more or less officially as one nation under God. This is what we mean. Now, thank you for this. Uh, Allow me to have this long explanation of what this has to do with us. But back to the passage. Paul, Paul addresses the problem of the, in fact, profound ignorance of God in his day. He starts by showing the Athenians that they are in ignorance, and that the God who is unknown to them needs to be declared, explained. Preached to them. He begins that God who made the world and everything in it and so forth, the, the, the God that is known to all people everywhere, is the maker of all these things. God's existence and attributes are obvious from what he has made, leaving humanity without excuse. And this God is still very active in the world that he created. He goes on to say he's not only the Lord of heaven and earth. But verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, determining our pre-appointed, what does he say here, our, uh, I think I had the ESV here, the uh, pre-appointed periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Um, We... Know this God, not only from creation, but providence. And Paul said the same thing back in chapter 14. God has not left himself without witness in the world. He did you good. He gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfy your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is showing them that God is not unknowable, as the Epicureans said, as the liberals say today. He's known by everything, everywhere, by his creation, by his by His providential care of His creatures, and supremely in Christ, a man whom He's appointed and raised from the dead. God is not unknowable. God has gone to, if you like, infinite lengths to make Himself known to us, descending from on high down even to a manger, a truth that is proved to all, Paul says here, by raising Christ from the dead. He's not unknowable. And... Can and say to you personally here, if, if you don't know, but you sincerely wish you did know about God, I have some very good news for you. This God is known. He is known everywhere. We, we know Him from what He's made. You know Him to be a good and giving God, but we find in Christ shocking depths of self-giving. In Christ, above all, we find the character and attributes of God revealed in the most concrete and wonderful ways. We see his, com- God's compassion, sympathy, and power on display. As the Lord heals a beggar and raises a widow's son from the dead and so forth, see what God is like. Christians are not preaching theories. In the life of Jesus, even the smallest child can understand how good God is. We see his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In Christ, it all comes home to us very near. And understood there, dear friends, if you've never understood before, that the one who we then see carrying his cross to Calvary is God. For there dies Emmanuel, God with us, the God who became incarnate to be murdered by his creatures, suffering for them to deliver them from sin and death and raised from the dead. This is not the kind of God that you would naturally imagine him to be. Well, Paul preaches to those who are in ignorance, to those who have an unknown God, that there is a God who may be known. And there is nothing narrow about this teaching. Even as Machen points out here, the door to the household of faith is wide open to all. The, 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 the liberalism, you see, claims to be wide and embracing. But no, no, no. The door to faith is open to all. The door of the new and living way which Jesus opened by his blood. And he writes, if we really love our fellow men, we'll, we shall not go about the world like the liberal preacher, trying to make men satisfied with the coldness of a vague, natural religion. But by the preaching of the gospel, we shall invite them into the warmth and joy of the house of God. So I've explained to you, very briefly, what they believed then about the remoteness and the unknowability or the unknownness of God, and how that is matched today by one who sees God in everything, and all that's good at least, like the Stoics, and yet one who says that we can't know, we can only feel like the Epicureans. But secondly, and more briefly, I'd like to consider with you man under judgment. This is, this is a terrible ignorance the pagans for all their ignorance paul points out are not even living up to the truth that they know if we are god's offspring as your poets your own poets have said we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by art and the imagination of man these times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent paul says look we must repent of this, to repent, is to admit that we we've just been wrong. We have done what is wrong. We have turned we away from what we know is right, and we need to turn back from the wrong to the true God, a change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. This is the very thing that the majority of the pagans rejected, though, then as now. Paganism, explains Machen, is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature. Christianity, however, is the religion of the broken heart. We don't mean that Christianity ends with a broken heart. On the contrary, Christianity means that sin is faced once for all and then is cast by the grace of God forever into the depths of the sea. But although Christianity does not end with a broken heart, it does begin with a broken heart. It begins with the consciousness of sin Without the consciousness of sin, the whole gospel will seem to be an idle tale. What good news is it that Jesus has come to save us from our sins if you don't believe that man is a sinner under condemnation? Characteristic of the modern age, he writes, above all else, is the supreme confidence in human goodness. So if John Smith beats his wife nowadays... No one will be so old-fashioned as to blame John Smith for it. On the contrary, John Smith is evidently the victim of wrong ideas. The consciousness of sin that was formerly the starting point of all preaching, today it is gone. This is the problem then as now. The the Greeks were not trembling that they were under the condemnation of God, and people are not trembling today. They have a different view of man. Not knowing the true God, they do not know themselves as they ought to know. They compare themselves with themselves. They say, well, you know, I'm a lot better than those other people. They do not see the power, purity, and holiness of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and realize that they fall so far short. And Paul, therefore, must tell them the truth about these things, that man is, in fact, under judgment. They haven't had the light that many have had, but even the light they have, they have disregarded And the God who will judge the world in righteousness has made this known. He has made himself known, and he has demonstrated his ability to judge the world and to do it through a man whom he's ordained. He calls all men to repent, therefore. And we see that God himself is not just the Holy One, but we see in Jesus the one who also calls and reconciles men in love. As Jesus explains, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I say this too is very contemporary. If this seems like okay long ago in a world far away. No, no, no. In in the world today, sin is is not understood and known. We we do not labor under the guilt that we should labor under. In fact, even in many parts of the church, sin is out. And brokenness is in. Brokenness okay. Um, you, you know, uh, who's the guy on television, um, head of the Crystal Cathedral? Robert Shuler, thank you. Uh, he said, uh, you know, uh, don't want to preach about sin, it's just, it's just too negative, I'm going to put people off. Right? It's, it's so much nicer to be able to, to focus on other things. Um, beloved, this is idolatry. If, and if sin is out, what good is it for us to read of Jesus who when he was born, he was given the name Savior, that he might save his people from their sins. Without the knowledge that man is under judgment, that man has rebelled against a holy God. Without this knowledge, well, Machen says it's all just an idle tale, and Christianity is reduced, if anything, to a vain psychological self-help project, where you hear more about Oprah winfrey's ideas than you do about paul's or jesus right and you think how do we get here today this is how we got here are we going forward is this progress is this the progressive view as they say oh no it's regressive we're going right back and mason says the fundamental fault of the modern church is that she is busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task she's busily engaged in calling the righteous to repentance Modern preachers are trying to bring men into the church without requiring them to relinquish their pride. They're trying to help men avoid the conviction of sin. The preacher gets up in the pulpit, opens the Bible, and addresses the congregation somewhat as follows. You people are very good, he says. You respond to every appeal that looks toward the welfare of the community. Now, we have in the Bible especially in the life of Jesus, something so good that we believe it's good enough even for you good people. End quote. Such is modern preaching, heard in the Sunday pulpits by the thousands. But he says it's entirely futile. Even our Lord did not call the righteous to repentance, and probably we shall be no more successful than he. Well, as I say, at first glance, it seems so much more generous and attractive a a liberal teaching that affirms us as good, affirms us whatever we believe, that seeks to comfort everyone, for feelings are the most important things. However, we see the fruit of it now, 100 years on. We see the joyless, unassured lives of so many of our fellow citizens Like it was in Athens, so it is today. That when knowing the true God is considered unimportant, there is no truly good news left. And we must then consider in conclusion the only hope that we have, which is in Christ. The only hope that we have, which is in Christ. I've explained the doctrine of God, a very different meaning of that word. The, different, the, the difference as it is in liberalism, um, shining in all that's fair, perhaps, but not personal, not intervening in our lives, not one that may be known, but only felt. I've explained to you the modern truth about man, pretty much the ancient truth about man, as they see it. Uh, in the liberal world today, uh, still man, good, affirmed, Not under judgment, not without God, not without hope in the world, on the contrary, needing only as good people to be taught even more good things from the good example of Jesus. But we have in point three the only true hope that there is Christ, our only true hope. How did this go over? How did this sermon go over? Well, there were three responses to Paul that day. As I suppose, there are still three today, probably still three here in this very building. Some sneered. The Athenians had to face the fact that if what Paul said is true, then they could not stand in God's judgment and that their lives were not good as they were living them and that they were not the wise people they thought that they were. Those are hard truths to hear, though it's what they needed to hear. It's something that proud human beings do find very hard to accept. We, we want to be proud of ourselves. We don't want to be in desperate need. We, want, we don't want to admit our guilt. We don't want to admit that we have been so wrong about God and about man and about what we've done and about all that we have done to reject the truth that we have. This de- desire to defend ourselves and protect ourselves is very strong. It is hard to accept that human beings are, in fact, spiritually bankrupt, alienated from God, and that God has pronounced a judgment on their life, a judgment which he will soon carry out, having given testimony of this to all men by raising Christ from the dead. But you cannot understand the good news unless you have faced the bad, as difficult as embarrassing, as fearful as it is, this is what must be accepted as the truth. But this was more than some in Athens could take. So, at this point, they cut Paul off. We've heard enough. They heard about this man raised from the dead. They sneered. Second, we read that some delayed. Now, this really did resonate, apparently, with some. They were interested they say we definitely want to hear about this in the future but not now some other time perhaps that's you you know that was me for some years i mean interested in jesus but not right now it was even augustine who said that he would pray oh god give me chastity and he said there was this voice in the back of his head that said but not yet you think it's perfectly reasonable for me to put this off until later i warn you with personal knowledge. With a delay comes a hardening of heart. You think that by continually rejecting the truth that you have been given, you're not doing yourself any permanent harm, and you'll be able to, reject the rest, uh, to accept the rest whenever you like. That is not true. The Bible says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, for there is a hardness that sets in every day you say, I think I'll hear you again later on this subject. God is merciful. Yes, God is not closing the door. Don't get me wrong. But the Bible says time and again, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart for a reason. Some people that day heard the truth and said, why don't we talk later? But some believed. Perhaps we have many among you today, like Dionysius and Damaris those who are prepared to face the truth, no matter how painful, about God and man, and man under judgment. And do you need forgiveness and peace with God today? Well, here is where to find it. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the man that God has appointed, as Paul said, who he was about to tell them before they said enough if you want to know God, Jesus Christ is the way. That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Because before Christ, religion was in ignorance. It was about faraway gods, if they even existed. Who could know the situation to which we are rapidly returning today? But in Christ, we have met a God right here. A God who has dwelt among us who has known us and loved us. John begins his first letter. We've seen with our eyes, and our hands have handled the word of life. He begins his gospel. No one has seen God at any time. but only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. So, so dear friends, I hope that some of you today may believe that you would have done with a watered-down, wishy-washy, saccharine-sweet religion which is of no good and will leave you just as miserable and joyless as you first began. Have done with a boiled-down religiosity and a tedious God and a meager salvation that may wear Christian clothing and even use Christian words. Jesus says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now choose life. Let us pray. We stand, you, we stand here before you, our Father, as all of us, a deeply needy people, having fallen short of the glory of God, a people who have come to seek and to find mercy and grace and forgiveness in that name of Jesus Christ. We are a people who come to Him now And uh, pray that the wisdom which he has brought us in the true knowledge of you may not be lost on him or on others that we know. We pray that uh, Ephraim, as is written, might say, What have I to do anymore with idols? For our fruit is found in you. We confess that we have ignored and even denied the knowledge that we have been given of the Holy One. We have not known you as we ought, and God forbid that we of all people of the earth should exchange the truth of God for a lie. We pray that you would shine forth again as the good and gracious, the reconciling and redeeming God, the one who is indeed not hidden in a corner, but who may be truly known known through the image of the invisible God, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we also, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, may be changed into that same image from glory unto glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. And we pray that You would give us a true comfort, true joy, a peace that the world can't give or take away, that all the feelings that people had sought elsewhere that we, your people, might know to the very depths of our soul the love, joy, and